My name is Joel. If you're a guest with us, I'm one of the pastors here. I'm going to be leading us in God's Word in the first chapter of the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 1. Uh, you can find that easily on a tablet or a smartphone if you're using a Bible app. If you're using it in book form, it is the sixth book of the Bible. So you're going to move through what our Jewish cousins call the Torah. That is the first five books. Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and immediately after that, you will find the book of Joshua. I had this really cool opportunity a couple of weeks ago. I think some of you saw that on social media. For those of you who didn't, or if you'd like to hear the story again, or even if you don't, I don't care. I'm going to tell you anyway, because there was a cool thing that happened to me. My friend Doug Heifetz, who's a rabbi, the, the head rabbi at the Osei Shalom Synagogue in in Laurel, Maryland, called me up and he said, Joel, we just got our first Torah scroll. Now, to our Jewish cousins, that's a really, really significant thing to get your own scroll. Not a book, not a tablet, a piece of kosher animal skin on which has been uh, inscribed the very words of God. And he said, this scroll, as you can see a picture of it here, this is from the third chapter of Exodus. And he said, I'm inviting uh, not just my fellow rabbis, but our Muslim and Christian uh, friends to come and join us because this is a story, the call of Moses, that all of us hold in common. And I'd love your help to restore this 125-year-old scroll. And this nerd went, yeah, I'm going to do that. And so I went home immediately. I was, I was so excited. I told my wife, I said, I'm going to get to put my hand. They're going to let a Gentile put his hands on it. This is just the coolest thing. And my wife, first words out of her mouth were, have they seen your handwriting? Like, are they aware of the fact that, you know, you, you probably should have been another kind of doctor other than that? And, and so they did. They took the scribe was that, that trained us in it, very careful. We started with calligraphy pens. He wanted to make sure we did the strokes right. He was right there to be very careful that the messy handwriting guy or no one else really messed this up. And you can kind of see here uh, where those faded words are versus the ones that have been restored. Those faded ones represent writing that was inscribed on this piece of animal skin roughly 125 years ago in Eastern Europe. It's phenomenal. And the story behind this, I wish I had the whole story. I wish this scroll could talk. Uh, again, it originated in Eastern Europe. Somehow, by some miracle, it survived the Russian Revolution, made its way to the United States just prior to the Holocaust. And so it's been here ever since and been kind of passed around from house to synagogue to somebody else's house. And a, a various, very generous donor called the synagogue and said, if you would like this, you can have it. And so your only expense will be in, in paying a scribe to fund the restoration of it. And so I got to take part in this. It was the coolest thing. And, and as I looked at this and I thought about this picture and I thought about the story that we're going to be talking about today, a story that was written in a language that looked exactly like that, I thought the book of Joshua is exactly about this. It's about the restoration of and the continuation of a story. Because when I stood behind that pulpit in that synagogue and took my place in restoring that scroll, I wasn't just restoring a scroll. I was representing a new generation of people who hold this story dear and desire with all of their hearts to perpetuate it even beyond their death. And that really is the story of Joshua. It's the story about fresh ink. Fresh ink being applied to a story that started all the way back at the beginning of time. And so if you've joined us for the first time this year, we're in the middle of a series called The Story. We're moving through the entire storyline of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation in about six and a half months. The goal of which is obviously not to cover everything that's in there because that would take much, much longer. 
Otherwise, this would be a contract job for me and not an ongoing one. Um, but we do want to hit the highlights, fly at about 30,000 feet, give you the handles that you need in order to understand the place within the story that the particular passage you might be looking at uh, lies. Where, where is that? What do I need to see? How do I understand this in light of that larger story? And that story begins at the beginning with God, who created all things for His glory and His honor, and who created our first parents, Adam and Eve, in His image and likeness. He placed them in a garden to cultivate it, to keep it, to fulfill their purpose in loving Him and serving Him for the rest of eternity. Scripture tells us that after, sometime after that, our first parents decided they wanted to be their own gods, and they rebelled against Him, the result of which is their place outside the garden. That means you and I have been born into a world, and every generation that will come after us, and every generation before us, all the way back to our first parents, has been born in a world outside the garden and thus outside of fellowship with a loving and merciful God. And yet, even from those beginning pages of the story, God says in Genesis 3.15, I'm going to initiate warfare between the serpent who has tempted our first parents and the seed of the woman. There's going to be a seed represented in this first picture, just to your left and to my right. A seed will come forth, a Messiah. Someone is going to come sent by God to fix all of this, to repair it and to set it back in its right order. And throughout the story of the Bible, we see numerous people that are used by God in order to continue that story. And we've already seen the stories of Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And then the last couple of three weeks, we've looked at the story of Moses, and we've seen how God has used him in a mighty way to continue this story. But today, we're going to look at fresh ink on the page. And that fresh ink is the commissioning of Joshua, because Moses is about to pass away. Now, there's a backstory behind that as well, and we have to go back to Numbers 20 just for a moment to see what that backstory is. God's people have been in Egypt, have been in the wilderness rather for for 40 years. Moses has put up with their whining. He's put up with all kinds of different things, and he has decided that he's had enough, and so he finally takes it out on them. God tells Moses, "I want you to strike. I want you to speak to a rock." Water's going to flow from it so that my people will have something to drink. But Moses is so tired of their whining, he decides to throw a fit, and he becomes enraged. And in that fit of rage, he doesn't speak to the rock, but he strikes it, and in doing so, he compromised the holiness of God. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I gave them. So even Moses is not exempt from punishment when the, when the holiness of God is compromised. One of the things that I just personally, I can't stand, and our staff will tell you this, is drama. Drama just makes me want to vomit. It just does. So now, that's one thing. Listen, hell is too hot. There are people with serious problems. So when you come to me thinking your problem is serious, and I'm like, I just want to go, really? Okay? And so part of that is me needing to be sanctified and probably needing to be a little more compassionate, and I get that. But, but I'm also reinforced a little bit when I read a passage like Numbers 20, and I recognize God doesn't do drama either. And He won't put up with it from His leaders. He won't put up with a prima donna named Moses who gets enraged and who takes it out on God's people. He won't do that. And when he decides not to do that, he just takes us out of the picture and he replaces us with someone else who will be faithful. And eventually, 
That comes when we get to Joshua chapter 1, verse 2. Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Right? So here's the deal. Moses is now dead. He's been buried in the plains of Moab on the east side of the Jordan River. He, by God's decree, has not put so much as a toe into the Jordan. He's not going to cross the Jordan. He's not going to spend uh, the rest of his life with God's people in the land. He's not going to see it. Because he's fallen. He disobeyed. Now he has to pay the penalty for that. And the question now before us is, what effect did that have on the broader mission of God? And the answer is, none. None. Oftentimes when a great leader perishes, we, we get sad, we grieve. You, you think about things, even uh, things that have happened in our own history. The assassination of President Lincoln, the passing away of Franklin Delano Roosevelt right at the end of World War II, the assassination of Kennedy, the death of Ronald Reagan. I'll just give you those four things that happened. And there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of sadness, there's a lot of reminiscing about what a great leader that person was. Those are four of our own presidents that are kind of held in high esteem, regardless of what political party you belong to. You look at that and be, oh yeah, that was a, that was a great leader. And in particular, if there's an assassination or, as in Roosevelt's case, there's a death in the middle of great uncertainty right at the end of the Second World War, there's not just sadness, there's uncertainty. There is a what, what's next kind of a, kind of a question that comes up. And, and what God does for Joshua here and for the rest of the people is He assures them, I am your leader, not Moses. And Joshua is your leader only to the extent that he submits to my will. Be strong and courageous. All those kinds of things that that our, our worship team read earlier. All of that is given to Joshua so that he can be what he needs to be. Because Moses is done now. All right? Now, and think about that. Moses, the one whom God befriended, the one whom God spoke with face to face, the one that God defended when people complained against him, he's gone. But that doesn't matter where God's mission is concerned. God's mission is going to continue to go forward. Did you know that every single year in North America, somewhere between 2,500 and 3,000 churches die? They go out of existence, right? And by die, I don't necessarily mean they literally die. I mean, some of them have been dead for years. We just take the life support off, uh, and we just do that. Uh, And as a friend of mine said, somewhere between 2,500 and 3,000 churches die every year. There's probably a few hundred more that should, but don't. And it's not because they're bad people, at least no worse than you and I. It is because somewhere along the way they have lost their vision for the mission of God or they have compromised the holiness of God and God simply removed them from the equation because He doesn't need them, nor does He need you or me. What He looks for are faithful people and He will move His mission forward with those people. Okay? Today, you got way too many churches, particularly again in North America, and we buy into this branding thing. We got to do our own brand. We got to have our own culture. We, we got to do something that kind of sets us apart from everybody else, makes us more attractive than everybody else. Listen, I, I'm okay with that. I, I'm not, I'm not against that necessarily. In fact, we're doing some of that right now. God willing, by the time we get to Easter, you're going to see a facelift that has happened on this campus because it's a, it's a 15 year old campus. It's looking a little tired. And so we're going to freshen it up. There's going to be landscaping. God God willing, there'll be a new logo unveiled. We're going to see our signage upgraded, not necessarily a brand new one, but we're going to see some major upgrades to that one, for one thing, so people can actually see it. 
Why is that? Well, because over time things fade like that. So there's nothing wrong with, with putting fresh ink on the page, so to speak. There's nothing wrong with, with uplifting and upgrading things. We're in the process of doing that now. The problem begins, though, when we focus more on that than we do the story that we're supposed to be telling, or when a church begins to, to refer to itself more than she refers to her God. Then it becomes a real problem. Then you have things happening, like you're out in the marketplace, and you go, come to my church because we, dot, 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 and there's nothing about Jesus. It's all about the church, and it's not about the Lord of the church. And one of the things that we understand, if we're careful, just looking at this baton handoff between Moses and Joshua, is this real simple principle. God's mission moves, and it doesn't matter whether you and I are faithful to that or not. He moves. And the, the, the choice for us is whether or not we're going to be faithful to that call. Less covenant, less branding, less culture, less Joel, less elders, less small group leaders, more Jesus. Now, why is that? It's because logos get old and signs fade and campuses and real estate gets tired looking and only Jesus is eternal. Only Jesus is the one that can be counted on to, to get us from A to B. Only Jesus can continue the story. And so we have a choice to make today, just like Joshua and the people of Israel in their day had to make. I love this quote from Eugene Peterson. He says, we choose. We follow the dragon and his beasts along their parade route, conspicuous with the worship of splendid images, elaborated and mysterious symbols, fond of statistics, taking on whatever role is necessary to make a good show and get the applause of the crowds in order to gain access to power and become self-important. I see that. I've seen that for the last 12 years as someone who's worked with a multitude of churches, who fall, many of whom fall into this trap. Here's the other choice. Or we can follow the lamb along a farmyard route, worshiping the invisible, listening to the foolishness of preaching, practicing a holy life involves heroically difficult acts that no one will ever notice in order to become simply our eternal selves in an eternal city. It is the difference politically between wanting to use the people around us to become powerful, or if unskilled, getting used by them, and entering into covenants with the people around us so that the power of salvation extends to every part of the neighborhood, the society, and the world that God loves. That's Peterson's way of saying, understand that it is God and only God who continues the story. And the story of Joshua is that story of continuation. It is that story of fresh ink. And as we look at it together this morning, we're going to see that it's divided up into three parts. Part number one, in the first few chapters, we begin to see the conquest of the land that God had given them. That starts with verse uh, 1 of chapter 1 and goes through chapter 12 around verse 24. Then we're going to begin to see uh, with the second one. The second is the division of the land, uh, where God's, the tribes of Israel get their particular allotments. And that's beginning in around chapter 13, moving to around chapter 21. And then the last three chapters deal with the settlement of the land and the promises that God wants His people to make to Him. And so we're going to take it in that order, beginning with the entrance and conquest. And it starts with preparation. After ten days of mourning for Moses followed by this divine challenge to Joshua and this, this thrice encouragement to, to be strong and courageous. This is your moment. You're in the batter's box. Don't be afraid to swing for the fence because your God is behind you. That, that kind of very encouraging thing. Joshua then begins by dispatching two spies back over to Jericho. And their, their aim is to spy out the land 
to determine the best military strategy. And they find themselves, once they get over there, in the home of a prostitute by the name of Rahab. Now, that may sound a little weird that the Bible would actually contain a story like that. But there's a couple of things that would be good for us to understand here. Number one, uh, if your skin color is different, when you speak, your voice uh, carries a different accent. If, if it's easy for somebody to recognize you as a foreigner, someone who's not from around these parts, and yet your objective is to spy out land for military conquest, you don't want to be noticed. And if you're a local living in Jericho, I would imagine it's probably not going to be that noticeable. It's not going to raise a lot of eyebrows to see men from another part of the country going into the house of a prostitute. So that's where they begin to hide out. And the surprising thing is what they find when they get there. What do you think you would find? Don't answer that question. But in your mind, what do you think you would find if you stepped into a home like this? A woman of ill repute running a house of ill repute. Well, let me tell you what they found in Rahab. This is what she said. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And all the, that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. She goes on to tell them, I know what you did to the Egyptians. I know what you did to the Amorite kings. Everybody in this city knows what has, what has transpired. We are afraid of you, and I fear your God. So they go into the home of a prostitute. After wandering for 40 years in the wilderness themselves because of their own lack of faith, and what do they find but a woman of incredible faith? You just never, ever know, do you? Who you're going to run into, what you're going to see, the way that your perception might be that someone is wonderful and they turn out to be horrible, or vice versa. Your perception of someone because of maybe the, the atmosphere they find themselves in like this, this is a horrible person, and then you discover, wow, what incredible faith this might be. Several years ago, we planted our first church, and, and in the midst of that, I baptized this young lady, came to know the Lord, uh, and we found out that she was a dancer in one of the local exotic clubs. And she joined a ladies' small group. Very quickly, they began to pray, not only for her to begin to develop and, and grow in the grace of Jesus, but also that they'd have some way of reaching her friends who were her co-workers with her there in that club. And, and those women decided uh, that they needed to form together as a group, and they needed to begin to minister directly to the women who worked in that club and do it inside the club. Now, it is obvious why when an idea comes like, uh, like this comes along, there might be a lot of men who would say, yeah, I'll do that, but no, this is women only. Dudes don't have any business going into this joint. But I'm telling you, we saw a, a, a good number of women whose lives were touched, many of whom came to know Jesus. And, and it was interesting, it all started with this one young lady that anybody else would have looked at, and especially if they knew what she did for a living, they would go, wow. There's just, there's just nothing there. There was incredible faith there. You're like, well, how long before she came out of that and put some clothes on? Well, it was a while. The same way some of you, when you came to Christ, it took a little while before we were able to clean up your potty mouth or get you off the sauce or deal with your anger issues or whatever else is going on. Listen, God sends people to hell for their sin nature, and that comes out and evidences itself in all kinds of ways. With this young lady, it evidenced itself in, in what she did. And yet we realized at the same time it's going to take grace and it's going to take fortitude to guide her. Because, yeah, you don't stay there and just kind of shrug your shoulders and say, well, this is all there is to it. I'm just going to have to do this for the rest of my life. On the other hand, you don't, you don't just drop the hammer because you get, hey, here's, here's somebody who is really not educated or otherwise qualified to do anything else other than ask you if you want fries with your Big Mac. 
making five to seven hundred dollars a day or a night, who's going to have to go to making five hundred to seven hundred dollars every two weeks? That's quite an adjustment. And so our women were patient. They didn't they didn't excuse anything she was doing or involved with, but they loved on her. And we saw women come into the kingdom as a result of that. And it, it was just an incredible thing to watch. Strong faith. Stronger faith than we saw, candidly, in a lot of people, men and women, in that church that we planted, who it was kind of surface-level stuff. They knew how to do the platitudes. They knew all the key verses, but they were not in love with Jesus. There's a huge difference between being religious and being in love with Jesus. And one of the things we find here, interestingly enough, and this is, this is worth noting for any of you who have a background that makes you question whether or not God can use you, keep in mind that right after 40 years of wilderness wandering where God's chosen people rejected Him, whined, got dramatic, and ultimately died in the wilderness, in the face of that rises up a harlot in Jericho whose faith was stronger than theirs. Your past is completely irrelevant to what God is powerful enough to use you to do. And we see that, not just in what Rahab does here, but in where her life goes from there. We begin to tell you, just take a look at this. She goes on to marry Salmon, who is one of the two spies, and they have a son named Boaz. Boaz, in his adult life, will, will take in and marry and love a widow by the name of Ruth. You can read about that in the Old Testament book of Ruth. And Boaz and Ruth will also have a son. Their son's name is Obed. Obed will then have a son. His name will be Jesse. And then Jesse will have a son. His name is David. A harlot from Jericho becomes the great-great-grandmother of the greatest king who ever lived in all of ancient Israel. Again, I say, your past is irrelevant to how powerfully God can use you and the things that He can use you to do. And it's not just King David. God would later make a promise to King David, and He would say to him, there will always be someone from your line occupying the throne of Israel. And 3,000 years later, that is still true. As David's descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, God, very God, the perfect man, reigns from heaven over His people today, the ultimate Israelite. All of that, now Rahab gets to be in the line of that. Look at this text from Hebrews where the writer looks back on this story and says, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Here is a woman that might not look like much. In fact, she might look like far less given what she does for a living at this point in her life. But she is a woman of powerful faith whom God used in a mighty way who ends up in the line of Jesus himself. So think about that. Genuine faith. You never know where you're going to find it. You just never know. Now, after all of this, then begins the campaign. They have their plan, and the overall strategy, if you'll take a look at this map, if it's hard for you to see here on the stage, we'll have these PowerPoint slides available for you on the website very quick, very shortly this week, uh, and you'll be able to see it up close. But the aim was for them to invade the central area first, so that the north and the south were effectively cut off from each other. And from a military standpoint, then it's very difficult to impossible for them to communicate to each, to, with each other or especially to, to formulate some sort of counterattack. It's harder to do when you're divided and the enemy is in between you. And so the central campaign is going to be the first. That involves three cities primarily, Jericho, Ai, and Gibeon. And so starting with Jericho, there's this really kind of strange strategy that God puts on His people. Here's what you're going to do. 
you're going to march around the city once a day for six days. Then on the seventh day, you're going to march around the city seven times. Then there's going to be trumpets. Then there's going to be a ram's horn. Then there's going to be a great shout. And then the walls will come down. Now, put yourself in the place of an Israelite warrior who has gotten this strategy from Joshua after Joshua's already sent the spies out and they've surveyed the land and they know what their conquest process is going to look like and you get this back. I don't know about you, but I'm looking at this and I'm going to go, when do the automatic weapons come in? Like, when do I get to kill somebody? I mean, I don't read any in, in here anywhere where I get to kill somebody and people kill people. I mean, this is war, right? People kill people. What am I going to do? And imagine your commander-in-chief saying... You do nothing. You march around the city. You blow your trumpet. You blow your ram's horn. You shout. Everything else is done by God. Because it is God who wants the credit for bringing the walls down. There doesn't need to be any misconception as we move into this part of history for someone to look back on this moment and go, well, it was because they had more, more of a standing army. They were more numerous. They had superior weapons. They had a better strategy. You look at this story and you only see one thing. There must have been a God at work here. And that's precisely what God wanted them to see. Precisely. I talk with more liberal colleagues sometimes, theologically liberal colleagues, who look at this story in Joshua and they go, well, that, I'm not even sure it really happened. I mean, for one thing, look at all the patriotism in it. This is just a Jewish nationalistic document that was, that was intended to promote propaganda about, about the Jews. And I thought, well, if it's, an, if it's a propaganda piece, somebody really stupid must have wrote it. Because you have, a, you have a period here where they do nothing. God gets all of the credit for those walls coming down. They do nothing. And then prior to that, a whole generation of these people die in the wilderness while a prostitute in Jericho enters the line of Jesus. That doesn't, serious, that doesn't sound like a propaganda piece to me. That sounds like raw honesty. That actually sounds like the truth. And so I look at a story like this and I go, absolutely, this is, this is pointing to a God. And that's exactly what happened. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people went up into the city, every man straight before him and they captured the city. And it's all credited to God. And that's where we arrive at a very, very difficult passage of Scripture that says, Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys with the edge of the sword. This is the first instance. It will not be the only instance in the Bible, but it is the first instance of holy war in the Scriptures. And if you are not disturbed initially when you read that, you're not normal. Okay? It's all right to struggle. See, we, we're Americans. We don't like to struggle. We, we feel a little sick. We want to pop a pill. We, we get hungry. We want to stick it in the microwave, get it really quick. So we, we come across something like this, and our, our minds go to one of two ways. Either we're really conservative, and we go, well, that's right. Well, they deserved it. God, just give it to them. And then, and then we, just, and, and we, try, to, we, we try to build a, a, a wall of stone around our hearts like we don't have any compassion for these people. And then if you lean more liberal, you go, well, God would have never told anybody to do something like that. Well, then, again, you're escaping the struggle. God doesn't intend for you to escape the struggle. He intends for you to struggle with Him and with who He is. This is who He has revealed Himself to be. And so your question, for those of you who would go, well, I, I would never worship a God who would kill, kill, kill children? Who, I would never worship a God. What if God's really like that? 
Our call is to struggle with that. People of faith struggle with that. And you will struggle with it when you leave here today. Because I'm not going to unpack it. We've got to get through the rest of the book. But I will tell you these two things to give you some handles on which you can at least begin to ponder some of this. Number one, you need to remember that the Canaanites were wicked people. And the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is, yeah, it's death. We always come at this from a standpoint, our, our starting point, when we look at a story like this, is what did those people do to deserve to die? And we forget oftentimes when we're sitting here in an air-conditioned building with comfortable seats, what in the world have we done to deserve to live? The wages of sin is death. The Canaanites had been warned by God since Genesis 15. They had had generation after generation, century after century to repent, and they refused. This is their punishment. Here's the other thing you need to know. Not all of them die. Those who have faith, including Rahab the prostitute and those in her house, are saved. Because God is a gracious God. God is a merciful God. So this becomes a very, very difficult thing. Here's the other thing you need to know as well. The Canaanites are not the only people who sin. They're not the only people who sin. After Jericho, we get to Ai. So they've just captured the Israelites, the most fortified city in the central region. Now they're going to go up the hill to this little podunk town, and they feel that they will take it with ease. But what happens is this. The people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And the result is... What happens at Ai? About 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. After this, Joshua falls to his knees. He wonders, what on earth has happened? God, what have you done? Why have you allowed this? And God responds and says, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. And so Joshua begins to try to figure out what's, what's causing this. Where is the sin that has had this kind of ripple effect among my people that would have resulted in this kind of defeat? Through a process of elimination, he discovers that it is Achan. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. Now, Take a breath, because we don't do that in here, okay? Mosaic covenant, fulfilled in Christ. We don't stone people anymore. But this does give us a picture of something called corporate personality, uh, something we're going to be a little unfamiliar with. Um, guys, there's a picture there somewhere. There it is, corporate personality. And you can see a, a charcoal drawing there of the stoning of Achan. Corporate personality is a concept in which individuals are treated as a unit so that what affects an individual also affects the unit. What affects the unit also affects the individuals in that unit. Now, we're not accustomed to thinking like that because we're good Americans. And for the last 200 years, we've been so soaked in individualism that we sometimes forget that sin has a ripple effect. And so we start asking questions like, well, what in the world have I done that I would be punished for what he did? Can you imagine yourself being a soldier going up to Ai and either getting killed or seeing your best friend killed and you come down from the mountain and you discover that it's this guy? 
on top of wanting to throw a rock at him, you're wondering to yourself, he's the one who did it. Why do the rest of us have to be punished for this? And again, it's this concept of of corporate personality. God says, I judge my people as a unit based on what they do with sin and how they hold people accountable for it. Now again, we don't stone people, but in the New Testament we do have precedent for this. Matthew chapter 18 tells us as follows. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector, which is another way of saying, treat him as though he does not belong to God. Now, what's that look like practically? Well, one example was given to us at the church of Corinth. And Paul tells us there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. Like, this is like, let's take pedophilia, for example. If you're a pedophile, you know they keep you in solitary confinement. You know why? Because if they put you in the general population, the other prisoners would kill you. Do you know why? Because even prisoners know that's wrong. And Paul says there's, a, there's something going on in Corinth that even the pagans look at that and they go, Really? You're allowing that to happen? What is it? Well, a man has his father's wife. He's sleeping with his stepmother. Got his arm around her, sitting in the middle of the service. Arrogance. Ought you not to rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. As long as he persists in this kind of behavior, he does not belong to your fellowship. Put him outside the fellowship. Man, this this is hard stuff, isn't it? Individualistic, consumeristic, Western church. We see something like this and we go, wow, I just don't understand. How, How in the world? Why would we do something like this? Why would we do it? But we do. At Covenant, we practice church discipline. Because we believe in the biblical principle of corporate personality that if the elders allow a ripple effect to continue, it will infect the entire body until finally all of us together face the judgment of God. Now, we don't do that to everybody. For some of you, you, you're wondering, you've had conversations with me or one of our other staff pastors or elders, and you're involved in some things and you're struggling with some things, and we've been very loving to you, and and you're looking at this going, is this this what's coming? Like for me? And like, no, listen, we don't, we have more to do here in leading than, than to be trying to kick out as many people as possible, all right? So don't look for the elders to be donning a striped shirt and a whistle and crawling into your bedroom window. We really do have better things to do than that. But when something comes to our attention, we confront it lovingly for your benefit. And if it is something that we perceive is going to have a ripple effect and start to affect the body at large, we take protectionary measures, as Paul would tell us to do so here. And we do it because we love the church and because we love you. And and this is strange, I know, it's strange, because in our day, nobody says anything to anybody about sin, nobody confronts anything to anybody about sin, and then we go to do it, and somebody goes, well, I just can't believe it, I am so offended, I am so angry, I might just go find another church. Listen, if if you think you walked into a place that winks at your sin, that looks the other way while you wreak havoc among God's people, maybe you did find the wrong place. Because we don't do that here. We don't. But it might be better, instead of throwing a temper tantrum and going becoming a prima donna the way Moses did, look what happened to him. It might be better for you to hang around and allow us to love you the way the Scriptures tell us to love you. Because a church that will not confront your sin does not love you. 
A church that will not confront your sin hates you. A church that will not confront your sin uses you for money, for prestige, for we got another butt in the seat, for something. Anything except the care and concern for your own soul. And so, and so this is what we do. And we do it because we're more concerned about your eternal destiny than we are your temporary discomfort. And we're more concerned here about the state of people's souls than we are how many seats we fill every Sunday. That is our concern. And for that reason, we hold people accountable. We hold people accountable. Some years ago, I got invited to speak at a men's conference, and the pastor, I, was getting, I called him to get a sense of what this church was like. And uh, he was having a hard time there. And he said, Joel, this is one of those pastor-eater churches. Like every three to four years, a new pastor comes in because either the previous guy gets fired or he gets tired of it and he quits. I mean, it's just this horrible thing. I don't know what's going on. But uh, I said, oh, okay, well, this, this will be loads of fun then. And so I went up on the mountain of this retreat center and I did this men's conference. And in the middle of it, I was talking about how men need to protect their families and the church needs to protect families and children. There have been a, a rave of allegations of pedophilia that had been ignored by a number of, of, of sister churches at that point in time. And, and so I pointed that out. Um, and I actually, a couple of things I told them. I said, listen, I'm a dad before I'm anything else. You touch my kids and I'm, I'm just, the board will have to fire me for what I do next. I mean, that's just, and that'll be fine. I'll take it and I'll do it. And I'll still tell you today, those, those, those three, they're, they're mine. And I know, I know they're sinners. And so we'll have good common sense when we're talking with people. If there's conflict, uh, you, you touch one of my youngins inappropriately. And the next thing I'm going to do is hand my resignation to the elders. And after that, you better run. Because I'm a daddy before I'm anything else. And I told that, a similar account of that, to the men. And then I said, churches need to do that as well because we look past this because we're concerned that there's going to be trouble stirred up. And really, all a church really needs is an atmosphere where any potential someone who would abuse a child would know, man, they're going to drop the hammer on you there and he'll stay away. He'll stay away. And afterwards, this older guy comes up. Previous pastor told me, he said, he said, there's this pastor there. We'll just call him Pastor Joe. He said, Pastor Joe was like, there was nobody like Pastor Joe. And he's like, the church is like WWPJD. What would Pastor Joe do? So everything I do is being judged by my predecessor. I hate it. I can't stand it. A guy that was pastor here 30 years ago, and he's dead now. And I'm getting judged by that. That man's son was part of our men's retreat. Gray-headed by this point, a grandfather, he comes up to me. He's really emotional. He's really sad. And he said, I need to talk with you as soon as possible. And I said, sure. So we found a, a quiet place. And he said, when I was nine years old, the youth leader at my church sexually abused me and nine other boys. And my daddy swept it under the rug. And two things came to my mind. The first one was, I just found the historical root for every problem this church has had ever since. Because do you really think... You can do something like that to a child and have a church ignore it and God be okay with that? I don't think so. I don't think so. God judges sin. And He will either do it through His church or He will put it on His church if His church refuses to do it. And we know this because after this, they go back up to Ai and there's victory. There's victory. God's people have victory. But the, the principle of this story is there is no forward momentum or participation in the forward momentum of God's mission as long as God's people refuse to repent. And so they go back to Ai and they win. Then they go to Gibeon and they win. 
Then they begin to move south, and they take the towns of Malkedah and Libna and Lachish and Eglon and Hebron, and then they move north, and the conquest story ends with this passage in chapter 11. All the cities of those kings, all their kings, Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. The enemies of Israel and Israel's God have been removed, and now it's time to settle. That brings us to the division of the land. And when you can see a map that's coming up here that will just show you where each of the tribes of Israel settled together. Okay? And there are two caveats in this. The first is the cities of refuge in chapter 20 of Joshua. These were cities that were set aside to ensure that vigilante justice didn't rule the day. Right? And so if you have somebody that's accused of a crime, he needs to go to a city of refuge. So, for example, just to give you a sense of what the, the intent of this, imagine that someone very well known and very beloved here in the panhandle was brutally murdered and police believe they have found the suspect. That suspect is going to get a much more fair trial in Baltimore or Charleston or Washington than he's going to get in Charlestown. Do you agree? Yeah. And so that essentially is what the cities of refuge were. This is a place where someone who's accused of a crime can go and be assured that at the very least they're going to get a fair trial before they hang them high. Okay? Then the cities of the Levites in chapter 21. The Levitical tribe, they didn't get a piece of land. What they got were cities within each of the tribes. And the reason for that is because the Levites were the priests. They were the mediators. And what does this teach us? This teaches us that God says you always need a mediator, number one. And number two, I will always provide that mediator for you. There will always be a mediator in your midst. You're not going to have to travel to a different tract of land or to a different province. Your mediator will be right there, exactly as Jesus is always right there for us. And this is what God teaches His people through these two cities. And then finally, the settlement. And this contains two speeches by Joshua at the end of his life. In the first one, chapter 23, remember what God has done and honor what he has done in two primary ways. Number one, do not intermarry with the pagan nations around you who worship other gods. Now, some have ignorantly uh, taken a verse like this out of its context to try to protest something like interracial marriage. Listen, someone white marrying someone African-American is not a sin. Someone Hispanic marrying someone Asian is not a sin. And if you think it is, you and I just need to go out to dinner and... I need to just confront you with some things, okay? Because that's just nonsense. And when you apply it in that way, you miss the point. Because there is such a thing as a mixed marriage. It's a believer and an unbeliever. That's a mixed marriage. All right? My family's got a lot of I was actually raised to believe, particularly with, with white, which, which is interesting to me, because my father is one-quarter Cherokee Indian, and he's in his 70s, and he's a godly man. Uh, but until he was in his late 60s, his hair was still jet black, really reddish kind of hue in his skin. And he married my mom, who was Irish and British. And, and for, what, for whatever reason, nobody thought that was a mixed marriage, and yet I was raised to talk, taught that it was a sin for somebody white to marry somebody black. And I'm looking at my dad going, y'all are a, what's this all about? This is crazy. This is crazy. And the result was we missed the real point of this, which had nothing to do with race or ethnicity. It had to do with faith. Okay? So, so the result of that is they better look like me uh, or they better look like us, but, but it's okay. It's all right if he's, well, he's a good Mormon boy, but, it's, but he's white, so that's okay. Right? That's sin. That's misdirection that leads us to a place 
that can be very, very dark. And so Joshua said, here's how you will honor the code. You will do it by not intermarrying with someone who worships another god. Okay? Don't, don't be talking to me about race or ethnicity. we got enough problems with believers mixing themselves with unbelievers and then wondering why their marriage is a wreck, wondering why their kids don't know God, wondering what's going on and why is there such an avalanche of tragedy in my life. It's because you married someone who doesn't worship the same God you do. How was that ever going to turn out okay? So Joshua says don't do that. And secondly, there's a warning... And then there is a challenge to make more history. Continue to put fresh ink on the page and do it by serving God alone. And this is where we find probably the most notorious verse in all of Joshua. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. This is a choice. That can be made, Joshua says, based on solid data of where our choices will lead us. Because you and I survey God who has kept His promises. He's preserved His people. There is a nation that is now established in the land just as He promised our father Abraham. All of that has transpired. He always comes through. So the question is, will you serve Him? God's already proven Himself in history. And from our standpoint of history, he's proven himself through what Jesus did at the cross. Will you serve him? And the choice is clear. There's no riding the fence here. You either serve the gods of the pagans, or you serve the living God who has revealed himself in Scripture. Those are the only two choices you have, just like they're the only two choices the Israelites had. This is strange, I know, to, to a generation of people for whom faith is just kind of an appendage on your life. I, I get that. But this is the choice we have, nonetheless. This is the choice we have. Back in the 1800s, there was a young girl from Virginia. Her name was Lottie Moon. She, um, she felt called by God to be a missionary to China. This is a picture of her in her younger years. And she went to Southern Seminary, actually the place where I both of my degrees are from. And she she met a professor there who, after their professional relationship, a romance developed. His name was Crawford Howell Toy. Dr. Toy taught in the Old Testament at Southern Seminary in Louisville for a number of years. An engagement happened. A wedding was planned. But then somewhere along that line, shortly after the engagement, it was broken off. And interestingly enough, this coincided with some devolving views of the Bible that Toy had begun to develop. He had begun to, to kind of swallow wholeheartedly a modernist understanding of Scripture and how it came together. He had begun to swallow wholeheartedly the German higher criticism that was rising and and, and becoming very popular, particularly in Europe at that particular time. And as a result, he rejected ultimately the Scriptures as as truth, as the Word of the living God. Eventually, he abandoned his faith. Dr. Toy died a Unitarian, not married to Lottie. Because at this moment, Lottie's got to make a choice. Do I give my life to this man that I truly love? Or do I abandon a relationship that I know is going to take me to a bad place and embrace the call that God has put on my life? And Lottie chose Jesus. And she chose China. And choosing Jesus in China, at least for her, meant to choose a life of singleness. 
and she embraced it with all of her heart. Again, we, we, we're in the midst of a generation now who faith is just an appendage. People that go to church, if there's nothing else on the calendar, people whose faith is a mile wide and an inch deep, and you hear a story like this, and you go, that woman's crazy. No, that woman was faithful. And so was Rahab. And so was Joshua. What about you? What about me? This God keeps His promises. This God is a winner. Serving this God automatically puts you on a team. Not that is going to win, but that has already won. Will you give Him everything? Will you do that? Because this God, who demands this kind of exclusive devotion from you, it is this God who brings these people to their destination, conquers their enemies, grants them their promised inheritance, gives them access to a mediator, and He is worthy of all of their devotion, all of their life, all of their property, all of their relationships, everything that they have. He is worthy of being given all of those things, and that's true for us as well. Will you trust this God who keeps His promises with everything you have? Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You do not hide the difficult portions of Scripture from us. We thank You that Your Word is raw and it is real. And it is filled with stories of real people. And it is filled with diverse people who at the end of the day are not identified by their race or by their status or by what they do or by what their past may consist of. They are judged solely on one single choice. And whether it is a prostitute in Jericho or a military leader in, in Canaan, those who belong to you, those who have a destiny, have a destiny that's not tied to their ethnicity or their background or their past. It is tied to the decision that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so, Father, I pray for that great commitment to be made by people today. And I pray that Shepherdstown and the surrounding area would look at the people in front of me and just think they're crazy because of their faithfulness to you. And I ask these things in the name of Jesus.